The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop trying to cram 16,385 rows in your Excel 7 spreadsheet and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 212 with guest Alan Hurt, recorded live Thursday, January 4th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who would have shot a man in Reno, but he was out of free space on his camera, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's time for another great show. Hi, Richard. How are you? Doing really well. Back from Istanbul, you know, battling the jet lag. And uh, next week I'm in Cairo, so no rest for the wicked. What exactly were you doing in Istanbul again? Mid-East Developers Conference. Wow. And we have a bunch of fans in Turkey. I don't know if you knew that. I did. I knew we had fans all over the world, but I didn't know specifically about our Turkish fans. Well, I asked in the uh, sessions I did uh, in Istanbul with Steve Forte, of course, and I got some hands. They were definitely uh, listeners who came up wow. and said hello. That's great. Well, shout out to our friends in Turkey. Rock on. You know, while you were there, I, I uh, opened up Google Earth and I took a look at an aerial view of Istanbul. It looks like a beautiful city. Massive, too. Uh, they say about 15, 17 million people. So it's kind of staggering to think how big it is. Very, very busy. And an incredible range of culture. Thousands of years of humans hanging around causing trouble. Yeah. Did you go over that big bridge that goes over the river there? Yes. Traveled from Europe to Asia and back again in an hour. It looks like a very unassuming bridge, you know, the that divides Europe and Asia. It's kind of, kind of funny. <laughs> Actually. Yeah, and, and, it, and, and literally at each end of the bridge is a sign that says, Welcome to Europe or Welcome to Asia. That's so cool. So cool. So do the, what do they call it? The gateway to the Middle East or the gateway to Europe or both? Uh, gateway to Asia, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was supposed to be, that was the original endpoint of the Orient Express, right? Huh. Very cool. Thanks for the history lesson, Richard. <laughs> um, always can count on you for that. 
So um, I've been, you know, I, I never say how I've been doing lately. I don't think people are really that interested in what I'm doing. But um, well, why I, don't I segue you then so you don't sound so sad? Well, no, that's okay. (laughs) What about you, Carl? What have you been doing? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, Richard. What a great idea. (laughs) I've actually, uh, you know, I've been installing Vista. I've been working with Vista for a while now, just in different virtual PCs and things, but I took the plunge and installed it on my laptop, and I had absolutely no issues. Nice. It was it was one of those things where you know I have the XPS Gen two that you know listeners know all about that because of the you know the the the, the PayPal button that we put up and thank you very much for everybody who donated. I got this laptop last year, the XPS Gen two from Dell. Uh, I went out, I got a brand new hard drive for it, popped out the old one, put in the new one. The old one is now, you know, it's all backed up and it's put away. But if I ever need to get back to XP Pro, I can just pop that hard drive in. So that's cool. Right. So, uh, yeah, I had no problems whatsoever. And um, I, I'm really liking it. I mean, this is the first time I've run glass on a real machine. Of course, glass doesn't work in virtual PC, but, um, but it works fine. It works excellent. It's really nice to look at. I've been running one of my workstations uh, since the betas. But I've been holding off on the laptop. I think I'm going to wait until I can buy a Dell M90 fully loaded with the 64-bit edition of, of Vista. And then I'll that'll be my jump across. So this the original XPS I've got, this old tank here, is never going to be converted. It'll be replaced. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this is the week that Vista came out. Of course, now CompUSA is advertising that it's, uh, that it's out. So you can officially buy it. Um, you know, we want to hear from you, our listeners. What do you think of it? Now, you know, now there's no excuses, right? It's, you can't say, oh, it's beta, so the drivers, blah, blah, blah. Check it out and tell us. And now let the us excuse know. is I'm waiting for Service Pack 1. Yeah, that's right, because um, the, pro- the problem I did have, which you may have noticed, if you install Visual Studio, it tells you Visual Studio is incompatible with Vista. And uh, in it because of something it does or whatever. And SQL Server and SQL Server Reporting Services has the same thing. But uh, you install Visual Studio Service Pack 1, and that takes care of that problem. Right. And same thing with, uh, with uh, SQL Server 2005 is if you install the service pack, it works. And, of course, um, you know, one thing that I found out the hard way is that Vista is a lot more unforgiving with p-invoke calls. I don't oh, know really? if you knew this, but um, a lot of things that XP would let slide in p-invoke calls, Windows API calls, will not you know, will not slide in Vista. And I found this out because I have a library that I've written to to do low-level audio, real-time audio processing, recording, right. and playing. And uh, one of the API calls takes a structure, and one of the values of this structure is a calculation of uh, the number of channels times the uh, number of um, bytes per second, you know, the sample rate divided by eight. And that had been hard-coded to four, and it worked just fine. Mono, stereo, didn't care. It, it, you know, Windows XP ignored that. But Vista doesn't. It blows up right there. So I found Interesting. Out, yeah, I found out the hard way. So this is probably what the, the cause of some of these, you know, p-invoke things, you know, things that are using the Windows API, the cause of some of these incompatibilities. It's just a little nice, nice tidbit. Well, and Vista is making this conscious effort to increase security at the code level to be more resistant to those buffer overflow tricks and so forth. And the consequence is where we took advantage of its looseness, we're being caught now. Right. 
Okay. Enough about that. We want to hear, of course, how you're how you're faring with Vista. Send us your emails, and we'll be glad to read them. And speaking of emails, uh, I we got a few emails this week. Three of them that we want to read, but one of them I'm just going to mention the gist of it. It's from Christian Loris, and uh, Christian Loris from Melbourne, Florida, points out that. Uh, you can listen to, you can find text in podcasts through this site called podzinger.com. And the site listens to, transcribes, and makes podcasts searchable by terms. And not only does it make it searchable, but it also shows all the snippets from the show where the word occurs, what time it's located at, and then lets you play it. The speech to text isn't perfect, and their site needs a little work, but it's still very good. Uh, to search for by show, first run a search for DNR. That'll bring up a set of search results containing a DNR podcast. Then at the top of the page, you can narrow your search by one of the returned shows. So then you could select .NET Rocks for the search criteria and then type in something like Agile and try it out. It's pretty cool. Let us know what you think of that, too. We're always interested to hear what you think. Uh, we're not associated with Podzinger. It's just a service that came out, and uh, we have yet to check it out, actually. Uh, uh, here's the first email I want to read, actually. This is from uh, Scott Rapsey. Scott Rapsey, he says, Hi, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I listen to .NET Rocks religiously on my commute to work, and I've done so ever since the early days. I can't claim to have been there at episode one, but I think I started tuning in around the 20 or 30 mark. Anyway, the point is I love the show, and I wanted to say a quick thank you to you guys for all the great work. I now run uTorrent at work with consent and make all .NET Rocks episodes as well as a few other shows from the POP stable available to everyone via a network drive. Very cool. A couple of shows ago, someone mentioned the transcripts for the show, and while I knew they existed, I hadn't actually taken a look at them. So I checked them out, and I can see where they could be very handy to have sitting side-by-side side with the back episodes. So I was wondering if you could provide a BitTorrent feed for the transcripts in the same way you provide the MP3 feed. This way, all the folks out there can easily access all the transcripts, and they can feel good about themselves for helping you out in a small way with bandwidth. I guess I haven't sucked up enough, flamed enough, or written long enough emails to warrant any free swag, but, you know, if you're feeling generous. <laughs> Thanks. Keep up the good work, guys. Scotty Rapsy. Well, Scott, actually, we will send you some swag. We send uh, uh, we let we love you guys down under there, and um, feel free to take your pick. And it's a good idea, I think, Richard, to put up a, a feed with all the transcripts. Why not? Sure. Yeah. If people want them, that's a, a a great idea. Yeah. And interesting that you know we've done what Podzinger's done more or less in building. Uh, our own transcript system, which I think has got pretty good quality now. Yeah, it's good. And uh, decent search tools. Uh, the one thing we don't have is the ability to tell you where you are in the file uh, from the transcript. So. And that's coming, actually. Um, we talked to uh, the guys that do our transcripts. We have a two-step transcript production system. First, we um, hire a transcription company to do the basic transcript and... Uh, Sometimes you get most of the time you get ninety five percent accuracy. It sometimes it almost seems like they put it through a voice recognition system or something. But but they say they do it by hand. Um, sometimes maybe by non English speaking people because sometimes you know like there's there's blurps. And then we actually this is what you can do when you you know you have advertisers and you want to put out a quality product is that we actually have a human being who understands the technology. And who understands what we're saying, 
go through uh, every po- every transcript that we get, and before we publish them, he hand checks each and every word. So you know that's a good thing that we do. And and he said that uh, the 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 round one production of transcripts said it'd be no problem to put a a timestamp in every page or scattered throughout uh, the transcript. So we're going to start doing that. Cool. Yeah. All right, one from for me, okay. uh, from Brian Keating. Carl and Richard, first off, I love your show. I listen to you on my 45-minute bus commute into downtown Houston. I get to drown out the noise and listen to some quality information and learn something new. I'm in a company where the paper process has taken over. Yesterday, I was trying to have a change in a stored procedure move to production to allow the system to handle data for users the way they expected it to. Mm. Of course, the investigation of the problem and the implementation of the change, as well as testing it, took less time than it did to get the change approved to move to production. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Some days I got to wonder if the paper's really serving us. Yeah. You know, who are you protecting yourself against with all that paper? Mm. It took me about one hour to write the documentation required to have the change implemented, followed by four hours of email where I left this, that, or this wasn't in the right format. And let me mention that I've only done this process with the company one time before, and my team lead is new as well. Finally, it was approved to move to production. Ah. Mm. There has to be a better way. Yes, yes, there does, and uh, I know the better way. Uh, I know there has to be a better way, and I think it lies within Team Foundation Server. Hmm. I don't know if change management is really a strength of Team Foundation Server, but I tend to agree that Microsoft is working towards this idea of from the bug report to the deliverable is going to get a little cleaner. Now that's your comment. That last sentence, totally my comment there. Uh, (laughs) Back to to Brian's email. my rants aside, I am trying to implement a TFS configuration that will allow developers and management to be more agile while still remaining compliant with these regulations such as Sarbanes-Oxley. I would love to hear a guest on your show talk about being agile while remaining compliant with those government regulations that we have come to love and loathe. I know how to do that. You just spend a little time writing a paper bullshit generator. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a Wouldn't show be too idea. Hard, actually, <laughs> the the actual idea of going and getting some and, and talking to somebody about Team Foundation Server alongside something like Sarbanes Oxley. First person that came to my mind was Pat Hines, actually. Yeah, but it's a it's a good idea. Uh, a loyal listener, Patrick Keating, P.S. could really use a dose of Mondays. Well, fear not, because Mondays is coming back next week. After a six-week or eight-week hiatus. February 5th. At least that's the plan. Uh, You know, in case somebody's house burns down or, you know, something else happens. Move to another state. Move to another state. (laughs) Yeah. Or in some strange foreign land. Right. Not that that stuff ever happens to any of us. No. All right, Richard, let's get to our guest. Alan Hurt is a systems engineer from Avanad. He specializes in enterprise SQL Server-based projects for Avanad. He's the author of the upcoming SQL Server 2005 High Availability book, uh, which is in A-Press, first quarter 2007, coming up, uh, which is also the follow-up to SQL Server 2000 High Availability which was released in 2003. Alan is a frequent instructor to DBA topics and presents regularly at industry conferences. And previous to coming to Avanade, Alan also worked for Microsoft. Hi, Alan. How you doing? 
Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we finally got it together today. We were running a little bit under the gun. Oh, we'll make it happen. Uh, this is going to be an easy show for me because Alan is, of course, a SQL Server guy and uh, and a high availability guy, two of my favorite things in the world. Absolutely. But I'm not sure exactly what it is you did for Microsoft, Alan. Uh, I actually worked for in their consulting organization, although a lot of people thought I worked directly with corporate because um, I, I worked did a lot of projects with uh, the SQL Server dev team. And to this day, I still maintain a lot of those contacts. I have a lot of friends over there. Awesome. So where were you based? Uh, I was based uh, out of Massachusetts for Microsoft, and I still live in Massachusetts. Okay, I get it. So you were actually, I mean, in the, in the consulting arm of Microsoft, but yeah. nat- everybody that works for Microsoft has got to have some connection to Redmond. And and uh, I could see you obviously worked so closely with it that everybody thought you worked there. Yeah, exactly. It's it's it was a uh, interesting thing. Alan, did we ever meet while uh, while you were in Boston? Um, might have. I honestly don't know. Very well could have. I did some work at the uh, technology center with a big classroom they had up there. And uh, that was where uh, the consulting services was located too, or at least some of you were well, up there. Well, the, the Waltham office, there was a building right over 128 there. Yeah. And then the consulting and sales uh, moved a couple years back to another building in the MTC. Right. Is in a different building now. Yeah. So. Oh, it's interesting. It's a great facility. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, and this show really came about because of uh, Tech Ed Barcelona. I got approached by one of the attendees there who waxed poetic about you as the guy when it comes to high availability. And it's certainly, like I said, a topic is important to me, but we're a .NET show, so I guess I really got to get into this whole thinking around uh, clustering high availability, those rules, and how developers need to care about them. Yeah, I mean, what I always like to tell people um, is that you're only as good as your weakest link, and if your weakest link is your application, then a $5 million or however much you spend on your infrastructure and however many people you have managing it isn't going to solve anything. Because it, it, everybody has to be in harmony and on the same page for everything to work right. And, uh, and immediately the thing that springs to my mind is you can have that great clustered SQL server, but if your software doesn't know how to deal with a failover, you're who? Well, pretty much. I had one client uh, uh, quite a few years back when I was still at Microsoft. Uh, this is back on either SQL 7 or SQL 2000, who's using clustering, and um, the SQL instance did a failover to the other node, and the application didn't work, and they were wondering why. And as it turns out, their ODBC connection was being persisted, which means basically it was never going to see the other thing. Uh, the other node after it fouled over. And right. So it's, I mean, it's, they set up a connection when the app starts and never tear it down. And exactly. So it just died. Yeah. Like basically it's hanging out there looking for something that's never going to be there. So they just had to tear it down and restart it. But it's those kinds of things. And the, the thing about, just to back up for those who aren't familiar with clustering, Clustering is just one high availability option in SQL Server. With 2005, you now have quite a few. You have um, replication is good for some scenarios. You have log shipping. You have database mirroring. And you have clustering. With clustering, the way it works is it's literally your SQL Server instance. And when something happens, it's a specialized setup with your hardware and the OS and SQL 
such that in the event of a problem, the SQL Server instance itself shuts down on one server, which is also known as a node, and then it, it fails over automatically to another node of the cluster and starts up. So in that process, since it's a stop and a start, the connections are going to get dropped. So every connection mm. that was currently running on the original database server dies. All right. those transactions are dead. They have to be redone. Alan, is that true for web servers as well? Um, well, web servers function a little differently because um, those would be NL. Generally, when you do um, clustering for web servers, you use network load balancing, okay. which is a different technology. So we're not talking. Of, we're talking about SQL clustering, not OS right, we're clustering. Failover clustering, which is just purely high availability, no load balancing. But it, but it's only SQL Server, really. This isn't an OS function, or is it? Right. Well, this is the way clustering works in the OS for failover clustering. I see. Windows has two forms of clustering. There's network load balancing, which is pure IP-based, you, you know, like think web farms. And then you have server clusters, which are pure availability clusters, of which SQL Server failover clustering is built on. Yeah. And that's the way it, it, the other technology is where you have essentially a stop and a start of your resources on one server and they go to another. And I, cool. I guess the key distinction's got to be that for a database to work correctly, a given piece of data is only in one place, and only one server can have control of that data. Correct. So a, a cluster failover is actually one server goes away and another one takes over, as opposed to a network load balance where there's lots of servers working on things at the same time. Well, now, the good thing about clustering in this case, which is where a lot of applications I've seen historically fail, is that the name or IP address that you use stays the same. That's all abstracted from the client. That's sort of the whole point of clustering, is that your your whole environment essentially stays the same. You just have an automatic failover. Whereas with a lot of the other SQL Server technologies, there's a large chance you're probably going to have to know about another server name and have to redirect your app and recode things. And so it, whether it's an ODBC connection or an any file or something. And I guess the point here is in the scenario you just painted where that connection died and it broke their app, if they were regularly disconnecting and reconnecting to the database, they really wouldn't have had a problem. Right. Or if they had actually coded a cluster-aware application and were able to trap the error somehow, there, 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 there are different ways you can go about that. When SQL Server, even even in a standalone SQL Server situation where it goes down, it's going to throw an error back. And how you handle that within your application will sort of color the end user's perception of what's going on. Because let's let's face it, an end user is not going to want to see a really ugly SQL Server error. Yeah. No, they're never happy about that. I once had a customer say, I want you to get over here and take this ODBC stuff off my machine because all it does is generate errors. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, so what I find is a lot of developers don't spend the time to actually figure out what, and you're never going to get all of them, what your most common errors you may see are. Find a, a pleasant way to track them so that they say, you put up a message like, the application is temporarily unavailable. Please resubmit your query. Or, you know, there are other ways. For example, if your database goes down and it's a transaction and you have some service-level agreement that you need to keep that transaction somewhere and have it submitted, then maybe capture it in XML and then have a way to queue it up and resubmit it when SQL Server is available. 
Um, if you're using a, a, a cluster, you can do a cluster-aware application so that the application will automatically know about the stop and the start and do the reconnect. There are a lot, and there are other ways. So there are lots of ways you can go about making your application pretty resilient and user-friendly so that high availability is built in from the start into your app because you really can't bolt it on afterwards. So let me ask both of you a question because, you know, we, we work in the real world. How many times do you see websites really prepared for an outage like that? How many huh? developers are actually doing this stuff? Pretty, they, they start to think about it after the, the bad stuff After happens. the first one happens, right. <laughs> You know, it's then how can we remedy this? And by then, as I'm sure you guys know, once code is in production, it's really hard to change it or do major revisions to it. Especially something as fundamental as how you manage your connections to your database in an existing application. Changing all of that is hard. Well, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it goes to a point of when you're coding your application, what you need to think about to some degree, and I know it's hard for some developers because many of them have not worked in an IT shop where they've been a DBA or they've been an administrator tasked with dealing with this application that's now deployed on however many number of servers, you know, a day in, day out. But you really need to think about those guys when you're coding your applications to make it easy for them to be able to tolerate these types of failures or outages or problems that may come along, you know, because if you don't put the hooks in from the get-go, you're only going to make it worse later. Or what you need to do from the get-go is that if this is a custom app, now third-party apps are a completely different animal. If you're developing your own in-house applications, when you're sitting down and writing your requirements, both your IT organization and your development organization should have input and sign-off on the requirements and have checkpoints. Because really, as long as the two organizations talk to each other, things work out pretty well in the end. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's going to be perfect and everything's going to be completely smooth, but where there's communication, there's hope. Where there's, <laughs> where, where there's no communication, you're basically praying that it's going to work in the end. Is there a single thing that that uh, IT people or developers, for that matter, can do to um, to increase or, or decrease the likelihood of catastrophic failure? Is there If there's, like, one real easy switch you can flip? There's no one easy thing. I mean, a lot of it, to be honest with you, is process. You know, one, one common thing I see at nearly every client of mine for at least the past four or five years is change management. Change management at a lot of clients is not a fully developed process. Oh, I thought you meant like get rid of the management. <laughs> no, not Regime quite. change. Then nobody's going to you know pay the bills. But, uh, right. It, it, the, the change management process of rolling, let's say, something as simple as a stored a, a new store procedure or an update to a current store procedure. Yeah. Um, you know that's. Probably number one. Number two is having a a staging environment to test changes and test things. Now, in a perfect world, every development shop or or even if you're having third-party apps, you would have a staging environment and a production environment in addition to your um, development and your tester QA, whatever you call it, in in your particular company. Um, 
And that staging environment would look like the production environment. Exactly. So, for example, if you have a cluster in production, you have a cluster there. And where that becomes important is especially on the IT side where, let's say, you're rolling out a service pack. A service pack in a clustered environment is done a little bit differently than it is in a standalone environment. So while you may test your application against, say, let's say, SQL Server 2005 Service Pack 2. You know that it works. That's not your issue. But you do need to test the deployment of the service pack. before You you never want production to be your guinea pig. Yeah, you don't find out that your failover doesn't work in your production environment. Right, and the other thing, too, is if you need to reproduce a problem that's in production, um, you don't want to try and reproduce it in production. You want to try and reproduce it somewhere that's a little more pristine that you can touch. And that if you have to tear it down and really get into the nitty-gritty, put on some debugging tools that if you're working with Microsoft support, they'll send you, and you don't want to put it in production. There there are ways you can – and most environments do not have a staging environment. They generally go promote from dev to test right to production. Right. And that's where I see most people fall down. Especially if, I mean, it really comes down to how different is your production environment from your dev test environment. If they're not that different, it's not going to be a big a deal. And most of them are very different because, you know, you'll have this really large box with some decent amount of disk or SAN or something on the back end, and you're developing on workstations. Right. You know, so you can predict, for example, behavior. Let's say you have a four-processor dual-core with hyper-threading machine in production, and you only have a one-processor old um, Pentium 4 as, as your main box that you're developing on, you won't see certain behaviors on your development box that you may see in production just because of the difference in hardware. I have one client that I've worked with where we had one query that was written back in the 7.0 days, so it wasn't, hasn't been touched in years. Right. And they, we just migrated them to a new data center, got them some new hardware, um, really new, nice new systems, made it available with clustering, ran a query, brought it to its knees. Why? They're doing like seven or eight union alls. And what I surmised was that there's a lot of parallelism going on that they would have never seen on an older processor. So the slower, smaller, simpler box actually ran that function faster. Right, because of the way the the query engine split it up depending on how many processors it saw. Right. Does virtual server technology work in this scenario in terms of a testing environment and maintaining some sort of uh, consistency? It can. However, you kind of have to put an asterisk next to that only because... Um, it's still not going to be an exact copy of your production environment. It, it might be a better simulation because some of the, the virtual technology like virtual PC or virtual, well, actually it's more virtual server from Microsoft or any of the VMware products can simulate clustering, but it's not going to be exactly the same because you're not going to have the HBA driver that you have in production. You're not going right. to have the exact scenario, but it's better than nothing. So, I mean, if I hear you correctly, Alan, you're really saying you have to have an identical set of hardware for production as for staging. Well, I mean, and I'll put even a little asterisk next to that and saying that from a 
you could even have it be smaller scale, like let's say you have an 8-proc in production. Um, if you're not going to be doing load testing against your staging environment, which you may not do, or you don't need all the disk requirements because you're not necessarily going to have growth, you might be able to scale some of the hardware requirements back, but it should look and feel for the most part. If it's like multiprocessor production. in production, it should be multiprocessor in staging. If it's external driver array in production, it should be external driver array in, in staging. Right. Now, absolutely, if you can afford it, the best way to do it is to have a full staging environment that looks exactly like it. But I don't know too many companies that are buying, you know, the same exact hardware, especially when it comes to the disk subsystem for right. their staging environment. Yes. Sand gear can be a lot of money. And if, especially if you're not shipping an update every week, you're going to have a tough time justifying that staging environment sitting around there waiting for another version. Well, that's it. You know, but, but the thing is, unfortunately, when, when most companies have an outage, you, well, when you calculate your availability and what you need and what service levels you need to, to have, one of the things that you need to think about is what's the cost of downtime? Right. And in your company, what you should be able to do is say, okay, we're an e-commerce company. This database server powers our web servers. If this server goes down for an hour, that translates into X amount of dollars or yen or pounds, whatever your currency is. And if you can quantify that and say we're losing, let's say, $20,000 an hour, we're down four hours, that's $80,000. That's probably at least a decent small sand you know, from somebody that you could have set up some hardware, right? That you might have been able to prevent that if you had tested something. Right. So so if you can quantify that up front, it's easier to go back to the business and say, here's what our downtime costs, but here's what this insurance costs. Is it worth it to us? And I guess the more different that production environment is, if you're not doing any high availability, your production environment may not be that different from your development environment. But if you, as soon as you get into this sort of thing of the more complex and larger scale gear, the more essential that staging environment is going to be for you. Well, and the other problem too now is that a lot of companies now have, due to regulatory bodies and other, and you know everything else going on, you have a lot of retention of data going on. You think it's Sarbanes-Oxley? Yeah, there's a lot of SOX stuff going on. So you have a lot of companies now that were, as a couple years ago, they didn't think that certain systems may need to be around for a really long time, and maybe every two to three years we'll have to do a refresh. All of a sudden, these systems are going to have to be hanging out a lot longer. And their data integrity has to be near perfect by punishment of federal fines. Absolutely. So the cost of downtime or the cost of the loss of data because availability can be interpreted in many ways. You know, your systems may be up, but your data is not available. Right. So are you, is everything really available? Not really. So you really need to think about all the dimensions of availability that affect you going in when you're deploying these systems and you're developing these applications. You know, and that goes down to your transaction size, even. Because let's say you're... Um, developing a custom application, and at some point your DBAs want to do something like log shipping or database mirroring, which is based on your transaction log and how your transactions are going to get from one place and be applied to another, it's imperative that you make transactions that are relatively small and portable. Right. Because if you do a an insert that has 70 joins and 
lots of hints and all that other kind of stuff, it generally, first of all, will probably be a performance problem in general. Yeah. But secondly, when you're going to apply the transaction log, it may not be able to do it, perform as well as it needs to because of this, and it will increase your downtime when you're trying to get the other system up. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. Yeah, again, you, you know, you got to sort of measure what the more critical part is. I've definitely run into customers where they would rather be down than wrong. You know, a banking application, for example, they'd rather having an incorrect transaction was much more damaging than having no transaction at all. And absolutely, and I would agree with you, and, that, and that's why everybody needs to measure what is important for them. Right. Where I, I also dealt with a marketing company where they'd rather undercharge you for the product than not take your order. Oh, absolutely. You know, so it, it's interesting because everybody thinks there's kind of one way to look at all this stuff, and there's absolutely not. You know, and unfortunately, like in your banking example, one thing that a lot of people don't think about is, you know, how much time can I be down? Yes. And everybody says, well, I can't afford to be down at all. They always say that. No downtime at all, please. Well, and <laughs> right. the, re the reality of that is the only way you will never be down is if your hardware never incurs a problem, you never install a service pack, you never update your software, and you never touch anything. Just <laughs> let it run. <laughs> you, you know, and look, 2005 is my, and, and at some point they're going to scream anyway because everybody knows with SQL Server and all most relational databases, you need to do things like rebuild indexes. You need to do things to be proactive so you do have performance and availability. Right. So the two kind of don't quite go hand in hand. So you need to figure out what that trade-off is for you. And the, the funny thing about that, though, is, you know, 2005 is much better, actually, than 2000 because you had things like online index rebuilds. And, but even that, there is a small, small, small period where your data will be unavailable. Like, we're talking probably milliseconds here and there. Right. But, but so you really need to understand up front how a lot of this technology will work, even as a developer, even if you're not implementing it. Just kind of have a clue to the working so that when the IT guys are screaming at you that they hate your application and it's hard to, to administer... You'll, you'll have a clue. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, have some idea of what hard to administer is about. Maybe we should sort of cap this with, uh, I mean, we're talking about clustering right now, and I'd like to go into some of the other high availability options eventually, but 
What are the basic things that a developer should be thinking about when they're building an app that they know are they're going to run on clustering eventually? Exactly. Good well, question. They should definitely take into account that SQL Server goes through a stop and a start. So they're going to lose the connections. So they need to somehow find a way to either have retry logic in their application. Um, they need to have some way of handling that. That's arguably the biggest thing with clustering. How, In your experience, how long does a failover actually take? Well, th- there are two sort of answers to that, really. There's the pure cluster from a Windows perspective. Everything fails over, and from a basic standpoint, SQL Server is generally available in about 30 seconds. Right. How, and that, I'm talking just master, but the reality is your user databases need to be up. So until your user databases are up, that's where the quandary is. So it's going to go through your transaction log and roll forward any as it would on a normal start, roll forward through any transactions that need to be applied, and roll back any transactions that are not complete. So again, going back to the trans- long transaction a thing of a few minutes ago, <laughs> if you have a long-running transaction and it needs to roll back, it may affect the, the cluster startup because it's rolling back that transaction, and it may, it may affect the availability of that database. Now, that said, with 2005, there's, you know, the, the sort of the fast restore option so that part of your data may be available still. Um, so there are some improvements that way with clustering, but it may mean that certain, if you're rolling back something, certain things may be unavailable, or you're having performance issues due to that transaction rolling back. So it's these little things that you can do to improve your failover time. Now, but having said all of that, I generally see with your user databases, assuming not a lot of stuff is hanging around in the transaction log, it takes about a minute to two minutes depending on how fast your hardware is. It could take a couple minutes. It could take a little more than that. It could take a little less than that. But I say two minutes plus or minus is a pretty good benchmark to, to look at. So as an application developer, I'm now thinking, I as soon as a transaction fails, I shouldn't immediately retry it. Because if I was mid-transaction on a failover, I should expect it could be two minutes before I have a chance to do that again. Potentially, exactly. So you need to have... Now, there's another aspect you can do in your application, set a timeout value. You know, adjust, if you do your proper application testing during before you even roll out in production or... Before you roll, just before you roll out in production, you do a full-scale test on production hardware. You should know, and do your testing under load. You should know really what that time is. I and guess you, that's a real valid point. That way. The, the first time you experience a failover should not be the one you did in production. Correct. You want to know that beforehand. How long does this take? What does it look like? Does it actually work? Right. And the other thing, too, is if you're using third-party applications or plugins for whatever your application is doing, you need to take into account how they're going to behave in this failover. You can certainly take, you can certainly build custom things into your own applications, but when you're dealing with third-party things that you have no control over, like let's take, for example, a Siebel, you know, where you can customize it. You can make it at your own fields, but you can't change how Siebel works in a failover. Right. You know, so so you need to really think about things like that of what you're developing, you know, um, to make sure that you do it right and say, well, okay, we can take into account all this stuff, 
but this stuff we have no control over, and we're interfacing with that system. You know, and that's the reality of development today, too, is that how many applications have you guys seen that are just literally one application, one database? Yeah, all custom code mm-hmm. owned by one group. Right. That, that, that is, I don't think I've seen an application like that in a few years, really, yeah. for the most part. It's, you're using some process, whether it's um, BizTalk or SSIS or some other thing, because you're, you're touching all these other systems. Because, and, and actually, that brings up a good point of, we're talking about SQL Server availability, but let's say you're touching another SQL Server somewhere else or another Oracle database in your organization. How do you handle those failures in your application, things that you have no control over? You know, it's, you know, it's interesting is that uh, as we're talking about failover, we're just recovering from a catastrophic power failure here at Pois Productions we had in the three, uh, midnight last night. And uh, it was power was out for three, for for two and a half hours, like there was a fire at the transfer station or the whatever they call the power station here, and uh, just completely blew out the entire building for two hours. There's just no, I mean, you know, short of having power generators and all that kind of stuff, you know, that the, the, which which I suppose is something I, I think is something in the ISP's uh, plan here. But yeah. but uh, is that a reality? Are people buying power generators, especially, you know, now that brownouts and blackouts are becoming more and more frequent all across the country? Well, what's funny is you saw a lot of that around Y2K. People got really paranoid. Right. I was working for a company at the time. I mean, they had a huge diesel generators backed up to the building, you know, the, the whole shebang. And then after that, people got really relaxed about things like that. But you're right. As you start to see... Rolling blackouts, you know, like you saw in California a few years ago because of the summertime and the heat and the air conditioning. Right. Um, you know, you have just in the U.S. alone, and I'm sure this goes out to a worldwide audience, just you have the, the hurricanes and stuff in the south. And, you know, you have. Well, and a couple of years ago, we had a complete blackout of the Northeast for, I think it lasted for at least a day or Well, or exactly. Something. The whole big thing. So it doesn't matter where you live and what part of the world you live in. You've got to deal with these environmental issues. Now, these aren't developer issues, right? Right. This is just failure this, issues. This is pure IT. But if you're a developer and you see that your IT organization isn't even doing this, you might want to say something. I mean, don't just think because you're a guy who normally writes code. It doesn't mean that you can't be observant. And I'm going to argue with you on it being a pure IT solution. I mean, we've certainly talked about clustering which is a very local failover solution. That's hardware fails, it can switch. Right. But going to remote locations, you know, the guys that were caught in Katrina in New Orleans needed another site a long way away to be able to switch over to. There's definitely some software elements to how do I switch to a remote location. Well, that's actually, you know, brings up another great point around applications. Another point where I see a lot of applications, and it drives me nuts with SQL Server, where things fall down, and actually we just went through it just on a data center move. Developers, and I tear my hair out every time I hear this, they hard code names and IP addresses into applications. Yeah, don't do it! Don't do it! You name it, they hard code it into the application. Yeah, and now and it's busted. That makes your application about as portable as last year's snow. <laughs> <laughs> Be- because then you need to, and and half these applications are probably legacy applications 
that the developer probably left the company three years ago. You're lucky if you could probably find the source code, and nobody there knows how, know how to even start to look for it. So huh. one thing you absolutely need to do is find a way to set your connections, whether it's a standard ODBC connection, which I highly recommend, or it's an any file somewhere. Now, if you're doing things like that, especially in any file, especially these days, you need to make sure it's secure because if you're putting a password in it, right. you need to make sure you lock that down. But do not ever hard code anything into a application that would prevent somebody from going in a disaster recovery scenario or in a data center move even from one place to another. Yeah, recompiling for disaster recovery is just no way to live. Well, and the other thing, too, that I see a lot, and the funny thing is that SQL Server 2000 has now been out for, what, about seven years at yes. this point? There are a lot of applications which still need default instances of SQL Server. Oh, right, right. Now, that that's also kind of infuriates me because, let's say, because in, whether you're on a standalone server or whether you're on a clustered configuration, you can only have one default instance of SQL. So if you need to get an emergency instance of SQL Server up and do a bare metal restore from a backup file, if your application is going to barf because it's not a default instance, you're done. You know, now, there are ways you can go around that. For example, you could connect via the IP address. But how do you know your application can even do that? Yeah, you're back to that same sort of problem again of not using names properly. So so these are a lot of the things that I see wrong in applications when it comes to high availability and disaster recovery that IT, IT has no control over this, none whatsoever. You know, and the other thing you need to think about, for example, is let's say you do have a disaster recovery scenario. Is your application a fat client or is it uh, really a thin client web type application that connects to some process on the back end. The reason I say that is if it's something on the back end and you can change an any file or an ODBC connection on a server, it's really easy. If you have a 20,000-person company or even a 500-person company or 50-person company and you need to now go touch every desktop to update their ODBC connection, is that really the best way to deploy your application? That would be bad. So now somebody needs to come up with a script, find a subset of people to test that script to make sure it updates and gets out to everybody. And how many of those people are going to have a problem running that script or getting it to run automatically? So there's so many things that happen way before IT is even involved. Because let's face it, when a developer is working on his local workstation, whether it's in a virtual machine or it's on a server or dedicated development thing, you can pretty much configure it the way you want to configure it that's easiest for you. Right. Or, or, you configure, or you develop it the way you know how to develop it, you know, or you've always been developing. You've, you've never thought about this. You've never deployed it in production. What do you care, right? It's just an ODBC connection. It's local. I don't, I don't whatever. Yeah, but, why could anything go wrong with that? It sounds harmless. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is where I get back to my point earlier about communication is, Unfortunately, with things like socks and downtime being much more um, visible in companies, right? you can't act like a silo. 
you really, really need to be plugged into whatever else is going on or whatever other initiatives are going on within your company because there's the spirit of the law and there's the letter of the law. You know, when you get a requirements document, it may say one thing, but you still need to interpret it properly. If you take it completely literal, it may actually be a wrong implementation. It doesn't actually do what they needed. You know, the classic problem is the guy writing the requirements and the person who's collecting them from don't necessarily fully understand what those requirements mean or what their implications are. Well, they're technical requirements, but what you really need to understand is the business requirement behind it, you know, and what the real business need is for it. And that's where... Now, granted, most developers who are probably at a more lower level probably aren't going to be exposed to that, but it's up to the people above them to make them understand what they're being tasked to do. Because anybody can write code, and heck, any IT guy can go probably deploy SQL Server, right? But that doesn't mean they're doing it right. That's true. Hey, um, let's get back to uh, the sort of the failover protection. Mm-hmm. This is something that we've actually been thinking about, too. I mean, I guess an easier is it easier to get a generator for, for catastrophic failure, or is it easier to sort of do these de- geographically disperse, uh, synchronized um, uh, boxes, which is, you know, something that we've been looking into doing. Uh, from what I understand, it's pretty difficult to do that and pull it off with any sort of, um, you know, good time, good timing. If you're doing DNS, don't don't a uh, lot of ISPs ignore TTL uh, values that are like below an hour. They could. I mean, and this is this is where disaster recovery drills come in. Like, because let's face it, having a complete set of servers somewhere else is expensive. Right. True. Bar none. So a lot of companies ha- kind of get really itchy when you when you when you start talking about the cost of doing this. Right. And the, and unfortunately, you know, it, it is what it is. If your database is you know a terabyte, you need a, a substantial disk subsystem to take care of it. Yeah. So you know you're not going to get away necessarily cheap on both ends. Now, the problem comes in of where, you know, first of all, where are you putting this other data center? Secondly, what a lot of people will do, and actually I saw this probably about six or seven years ago, back in the 7.0 days. I had a customer who was actually doing log shipping. They had another database server ready to go. The problem is that they had never tested their disaster recovery procedures. They didn't right. trust that it would work. So we waited six hours for the database to restore. Wow. <laughs> Which is not the whole point of log shipping is that y- you're up to date within a few minutes. It's not as, as in sync as clustering, but it's not that far behind. Well, exactly. Depending on how frequently you're backing up your transaction logs and then copying them over and applying them. But it, to me, it's always really interesting to see how, you know, no matter what plans you have, you can have the best plans in the world for what you're trying to do. If you cannot execute the plan, or you have no plan, you just have the technology, you never thought about testing the plan, or even coming up with one, it's no good. You know, so you have to do things like disaster recovery drills. I worked at a client earlier this year where um, I was doing some work for them, but some of the people weren't available because they were actually doing a disaster recovery drill, where they would literally switch over their entire environment to another data center. Just to see if they could actually do it. 
you know, and the, these are unfortunately the things that you need to do, and this is where some of the problems like in your applications will show up and, and how difficult it is to do a switch. Uh, I mean, log shipping is one of my favorite technologies purely because it's it's inexpensive and fairly effective. Well, the I, funny thing is, is it has it, people... I, What's funny is all it really is is back up and restore. You know, right. people people like to liken it to something else. All log shipping is for those of you who don't know out there is you you back up your transaction log, which means your database is in full or bulk log, preferably full. Right. You copy that transaction log to another data, uh, another server, SQL server, um, and you apply it to a database that is restored either in with no recovery or with standby which puts it in a special state to load transaction logs. And then at a given point, you could switch over to that, and you'll be as far back as all the transaction logs you've applied. The thing I liked about log shipping is in clustering, you need basically two identical machines. Well, you do. I mean, there's a whole... One of the the, the problems that a lot of people see with clustering is that it's a very specialized solution, and you need to have hardware that's on the cluster list of the Windows Server com- compatibility list. There's a, there's a lot of stuff. One of the, the, the major thing that people hate about clustering are all the Windows-level type requirements. Right. SQL really isn't the issue. Log shipping is about as simple and, and I say dead stupid. It's not really stupid, but it is dead stupid to implement. It is what it is. Now, mirroring to me is sort of halfway between that in the sense that um, you all you... It, you're go- that's really can be potentially on a per transaction basis if we're doing synchronous mirroring. And this and is the this is new to 2005 yes, mirroring. Correct. This is 2005 Service Pack One actually. Oh, okay. Um, the feature was in 2000 RTM, but it wasn't officially turned on until Service Pack One. Okay. So, you know, it, it, it could potentially benefit you, but it, it but you need to now have a network that can handle the throughput if you're say you're a high OLTP shop. You know, and you're you're doing synchronous mirroring. So these are the kinds of things that you need to test out as you're setting this stuff up. Now, the the other thing of clustering versus some of these other technologies, and we haven't gotten to replication yet, but is that clustering is that your instance literally it stops and it starts all your logins, all your databases, everything is the same. With log shipping, mirroring, replication, anything else you generally might use that's built into SQL Server. You now need to make sure your your SQL Server logins are in the other place. Your jobs are set, are set up. If you have backup jobs or anything special, anything that sits outside the database needs to be brought over there. So there are lots of things you need to now take into account because it's on a per database level, not on a per. It's not a server level type thing. Yeah. So that flexibility that I get also comes at the price of making sure I keep things in sync. I think the classic Correct. one people are going to get bitten by with log, uh, with log shipping is that the master, the logins and so forth, are out of date on the destination server. Correct. And, and then that's where most people... And, and so one of the things, processes that you need to have in place is to make sure you're, you're getting your logins out of your primary and getting them over to your standby server. Hmm. And, and, of course, the only reason this happens automatically in clustering is that it's the same set of data all the time. It's two machines running on the same database. It's just one is held at bay until the other one fails. Well, sort of. It's not quite how it works. It, really, all it is is think of, it, think of them as two standalone systems. 
SQL Server is running on one of them, it stops and it starts on the other. It's not even really waiting. I mean, technically it is waiting, but only one of them can own the resources at one time. SQL Server isn't running on both at the same time for that particular instance. Right, for that particular database. Yeah. Each of them could have their own database doing different things and monitoring the other. Well, no. No, that's not the way it works. No? No. Clustering, literally, if you install a clustered instance, I'm just talking single instance of SQL Server. Right. It's owned by one node, and it's everything's run on that one node. Now, if you have another clustered instance of SQL Server on the same cluster, it has its own set of resources, and you can have it running on the same node or a different node. But they won't see the same resources, for example, if you have a drive R. That drive R can only be used by one of the instances. Right. It can't be used by both. So everything is isolated, like like essentially, to some degree, it would be on a standalone server, except on the standalone server, you could share, say, drive R. That, that's one big difference. So there's no concept of load balancing. You can have an instance of SQL Server, but you put a database on one node and the other. No. If you have one instance of SQL Server, everything's got to be owned by one node, and that's it. And this gets back to your critical point about if you're going to make a cluster-aware application, it has to be instance-aware of SQL Server because the norm in a clustered environment is multiple instances. Well, yeah, because you want to take advantage of all your hardware that you have right. available to you. Now, the, the, the funny thing that I, that I, I don't see as much of these days is, and I'm sure maybe you guys can ch- chime in here, but I still see applications that, oddly enough, are still coded to DBLive. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I haven't <laughs> seen one of those in a long time. You know, and there are, unfortunately, there are legacy applications out there, so you're really not taking advantage of, you know, and that's where, for example, if you're using an instance name, a named instance wasn't even thought of with DBLib and was depreciated before 7.0. Right. So a DBLib app-based application would never be able to take advantage of it. Wow. I'm sure glad I don't have any DB Live apps running around anymore. And, really. and, and I think they've pretty much, from what I've seen, sh- shaken themselves out of the trees. But I think there are still a few companies out there who still have some really old stuff that they've updated the application, but not the connectivity layer. Right. And they've, and they've migrated from one version of SQL Server to the other and just hoped it kept working. Exactly. Alan, is there any way that um, SQL notification services can help out in this uh, in a in a failure situation? Well, the funny thing about notification services, and, it, and I haven't dealt with it much because it's not a feature I touch a lot. Um, to me, it's kind of like a, a little bit like a biz talk, or it's almost like a messaging type thing, right? Where you can kind of queue up things, and um, so it's just another method of doing something like that. Yeah, and if something goes down, it's not going to be giving you any messages. Well, right. I mean, but it, but if you have it on its own SQL server and it's supposed to push out messages to another SQL oh, sure. server, it could be queued up. So it depends how you have everything set up, right, and your application set up. And this is where I was talking a little bit earlier about having ways of, of capturing things within your application, whether it's in BizTalk, which has a SQL server component of its own, or you do it in SQL notification services, or you do it in XML, that you store on a file system somewhere, whatever you're doing, because there are ways you can make your clients still be able to work that they don't even know the back-end database went down. And right. then resubmit these orders or transactions or whatever you're doing on the fly on the back without anybody knowing that 
So they're completely protected. Um, now, that takes a lot of thought to get, to get it done. I'm not saying it's easy, because by no means is it. But there are certainly things that you can think about in your application design to make it more resilient. Yeah. And, but, and I guess the perfect implementation of an application in a high availability environment, that's exactly what you want. Nobody can tell you switch databases. Absolutely. I mean, the only time that they should ever know it's down is when you put up a, a friendly message that says we're down for maintenance. So far, we've really talked about these high availability technologies like log shipping for the purposes of high availability of keeping the system up. But there are other things you can do with log shipping. Well, absolutely. Let me just backtrack a little bit and let's talk about upgrade for a second. Now, one one mistake I've seen actually by a couple of clients in about the past year is that they assume that their application is just going to work with 2005. So I don't care what your back-end system looks like, clustered, available, not available, down 50% of the time. If you're planning on going to 2005, you must, especially if you're doing custom and a custom application or have a custom application, test your application thoroughly regression tested against 2005. Because there are differences that are significant. Absolutely. Um, I had one client who didn't touch their code for quite some time and um, found out, and most of their logic was in stored procedures and found out they needed to recode most of them. That was Really? That, that, well, they, they got lucky with 2000 and things just didn't break. And whatever changed in 2005, certain behaviors changed. And, you know, for every story you hear like that, you'll hear 100 where SQL Server 2005 made it perform 10 times faster and just work 1,000 times better. So don't automatically assume that your application is going to work with no problems whatsoever against 2005. You know, that, that's number one thing I caution people on. But having said that, the next step is how do I migrate my databases from 2000 to 2005 in production? Now, assuming you're going to new hardware, the, the easiest way to do it is log shipping. Cause, uh, and I've done this in, in the past with a few clients, even back in the 2000 days, when, we, when I was just either moving data centers, they had other stuff to do. But you set up log shipping between server A and server B because you can take a 2000 database and restore it on 2005. And same thing with the 2000 transaction logs and to 2005. And then at some point, you let it go over. At some point, you stop all your traffic to your main site. Make sure, all you, make sure that there are no connections in SQL Server. Take your last transaction log back up, copy and restore it in your new production servers. Bring the database online. And really, it should only be a couple-minute switch because you're not worried about all of a sudden, okay, we stopped all our traffic into the current production system. We now need to back up the database copy it over, and restore it, and however long that's going to take. So you've essentially been doing the upgrade all along for a period of time, and then you just do the switch. Right, right. And it's just that steady stream of data. The, the, the pause there, you only have, you don't have to pause for the backup and restore. Well, you do, but it's just this time, in this case, it's only the data that changed in the last interval. Right. If done right, I mean, the reality is you should probably have, as long as you know what you're doing with log shipping and everything else, you should probably have, from a SQL, pure SQL Server perspective, I'm not talking about getting your application servers up and reconnecting the application, but just you should probably have under 10 minutes of downtime just to do your server switch. Right. And if you're clever with, and I think uh, if you're clever with your application design, say you're using queuing or you have these mechanisms where you can 
take some downtime from the database, you can do a seamless switchover. Absolutely. All right. We've talked about log shipping a fair bit. I know we've talked about clustering a lot. And I think we briefly mentioned mirroring, which is more sort of in between the two, right? Uh, it's, log more, shipping... it's definitely more robust um, than log shipping. And I like the technology a lot. Um, basically, what it is is instead of you know, taking a whole transaction log back up and shipping it over, you're essentially reading transactions out of the transaction logs and shipping them over at an individual transaction level. So we're in log shipping, I'm waiting five minutes or 15 minutes and backing up a big chunk of uh, that whole chunk of log and sending it over. You're doing this sort of real time. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it, it, if you want to think about it as real time log shipping, it for the most part is. And then there are both synchronous and asynchronous modes to it. And synchronous modes meaning that the the server one doesn't commit till server two's got it as well. Exactly. So essentially, it's a two phase commit, which does mean you're slowing down the performance of the database if there's any network problems or anything or like problems. That. Right. So that's again, we get back to transaction size, and you know you really need to make sure things are really efficient. Now, here's where some of your obviously your IT folks are going to play in because. You need to make sure you have a, a properly scaled out system and network to handle this. Yeah, you might want to isolate that mirroring connection between the databases. Potentially. I mean, you may not have to if the network's robust enough. You know, I don't say out of the gate have a dedicated network connection because for some, they'll do it and it's overkill. Yeah. You know, you really just need to evaluate what you're doing. I think just talking to your IT guys and saying, hey, I'm going to do this, it might generate a lot of traffic, then they know to look for it, they might isolate it with a VLAN or actually run a separate switch and cable. Well, exactly, because with asynchronous, you know, essentially what will happen is when you go over and the transaction is essentially sent over, it doesn't need the two-phase commit handshake. It says, okay, I've got this thing and I'll apply it, and then it commits on the, the primary. So it just works a tad differently. So so there might be, kind of like log shipping, there might be a tad bit of latency that's just built into the way asynchronous works, right? So then you trade off the front-end performance for a little more behind. Right. You know, and now the other thing, too, there is, you know, replication paints an interesting scenario because it's to me it's not as while you can use it certainly for availability a great use which not many people think of replication in this way is how many clients do you know that really when they need data to be available if they've got 1500 tables in their database really they look at 50 of them right so one a, a nice way to use replication is to have that data in those 50 tables or the subset of that data, what they really need to look at, available elsewhere. So that in the event that your primary database goes down, whoever's using that data actively, while they may not be able to update it, they can certainly read from it. So you could say at least partially operational. And it's an interesting point. Clustering, log shipping, mirroring, they're all full database methods. Only replication gives gives us that ability to choose the tables. We want to exactly. put over to the other place. You know, and it, 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 I, I would say if you have reporting requirements, replication is the way to go. And, you know, re- replication can certainly help you out because, as you just mentioned a second or two ago, part of business continuity is making sure the business is back up and running. Right. Even if your main database isn't up, if they can still do their work, 
and you have another copy of the database, even a subset of the data that makes them work, you still look like a hero. Yeah, and, and recognizing what's critical now versus later, uh, being able to keep taking orders, even though I can't produce the commission reports at the moment, is probably okay. I want to be able to keep taking orders. I only really need those commission reports once a month. So you can have a few days to get those back up. Just make sure the phones are being answered. Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, too, because you have partial restores in 2005, if you're breaking things out, for example, by file groups, and let's say you need to do a a partial, like a piecemeal restore. Right. If you break things out by, say, year or whatever, if you're doing, have an e-commerce site, let's face it, if you we're now in 2007, but you're going to be looking at orders for the most part from 2006 and 2007, well before you're going to look at anything older than that. So you get those restored, and you worry about your other stuff later. Sure. And you're having that flexibility to just grab what you absolutely need to keep going. So what's going to make the difference. But the thing is, that factors into your application design. It absolutely filters back into how you how flexible or not you've designed your application to handle that. I think you've made the real key point here, Alan, which is communication between the IT and the dev guys. And I also think the business guys, too, of really understanding what the costs of high availability are and what their real needs are is what's going to make this worthwhile. Well, in in, in the end, it's a trade-off between all of them because nobody's going to really spend what exactly it takes to do it, right? So where's the acceptable trade-off point? You know, that and that's sense. not a question I can certainly answer. It's, it's, it's a very complex question that is specific to every implementation. All right, guys. Well, I mean, I, I, I kind of enjoy sitting on the sideline every once in a while. But, Richard, you know, you should have your own show. <laughs> well, you, I knew this going in. Alan and I see eye to eye on a lot of these things. High availability is an interesting topic. And it really gets into that sort of enterprise thinking about what you want uh, out of your systems as a whole. It really is. Uh, it really is interesting for me too, and I hope the listeners uh, thought so as well. Alan, thank you very much for joining us on .NET Rocks today. Well, thank you for uh, having me. I enjoyed it. And uh, best of luck in the future. And we'll see you, dear listener, next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Don't